Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And we are back this week with Megan Payne. Megan, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Kyle. It has been quite the week, hasn't it? It has been been a crazy, crazy week as always. And then also joining us this week, uh, one of our favorite guest hosts to have on to talk about Georgia politics, Jessica Salaji, writer at allongeorgia.com. Jessica, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me again. I'm excited about this discussion we have coming up. (laughs) Yeah, we've got uh, two good topics for you guys this week. So uh, for our first topic this week, we're going to talk about comments Stacey Abrams made in Statesboro when she was talking about uh, the need for a diverse array of jobs in rural Georgia. Um, She said that uh, people should not have to go into agriculture or hospitality in Georgia to make a living here in the state. Um, These comments were received quite scornfully from the Kemp campaign and from Republicans who said that uh, she was being condescending to people who were working in two of Georgia's most important industries. So we'll talk about these comments um, and the political fallout from those. And then for our second topic this week, um, it's been all about voting, voting, voting everywhere that you've looked the last few weeks in Georgia politics. Um, And the issue of access to the ballot has become kind of a key dividing point between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams as this election has neared. Stacey Abrams has said that Brian Kemp is an architect of voter suppression, enacting policies that make it harder for people of color to vote in the state. And uh, Brian Kemp fires back saying that actually none of this is true, that some of the problems that we've seen in voter registration are actually the result of Abrams' work on the issue, and that it's never been easier to vote, or it's never been easier to register to vote through the Secretary of State's office in Georgia. Um, so those are the topics that we're going to hit on this week. Um, so let's let's dive into this first one. Um, so Stacey Abrams is under fire for comments her opponent says are condescending to Georgia's agriculture and hospitality workers. Last week, Stacey Abrams told a crowd in Statesboro uh, the following. And what I want to do is say, look, we can take 5,000 small businesses across the state of Georgia, including Camden County and McIntosh County and Colquitt County. And then we get those 5,000 businesses enough resources that they can create 10 new jobs each, Come 10 good paying jobs. That's right. Because those are 50,000 jobs that never leave Georgia. That's why I'm running to be the next governor of our state. That's why we've got to And I want to create a lot of different jobs because people shouldn't have to go into agriculture or hospitality to make a living in Georgia. Why not create renewable energy jobs? Because I'm going to tell y'all a secret. Climate change is real. And we can create 25,000 to 45,000 good paying jobs in Georgia if we acknowledge that renewable energy is not only the future, it's the now. And I'm the only candidate ready to do it. Kemp's campaign fired back, saying that these comments were brash and condescending and that they disparaged hardworking Georgians in every corner of our state. The Abrams campaign fired back at Kemp, saying that his comments were absurdly misleading and pointing to Kemp's pledge to sign an anti-LGBT discrimination bill business interests have opposed and his failure to pay back a loan he personally guaranteed for an agribusiness in Kentucky. Um, Jessica, let's start with you. I know you reported on this, on these comments from uh, Stacey Abrams. Uh, what was your reaction uh, to what she said on the stump? I actually live in Statesboro and I was on campus, not at her event, but um, I was on campus at the same time. And it kind of spread like wildfire before um, the camp campaign got a hold of it. My initial reaction was that it was um, poorly worded. And maybe not intend, I don't, you know, I hate speaking on someone's intentions, but I don't believe that that was her intention um, to say what she did. And I understand that when you're speaking to college students, perhaps you're trying to tell them, you know, there's a lot, you know, you want a lot more out there and a lot more opportunity. But um, I just don't think it was the right message for Bullock County, which is an agriculture community, whether you're talking about um, talking to students or not. Megan, this issue uh, really became a very divisive point in the politics of this race between Abrams and Kemp. Did you get the impression that this was just sort of about politics, that 
if not for this weapon that Republicans could use against Abrams, that they would just find another one? Or uh, do people in Georgia's agriculture and hospitality industries have have reason to take umbrage with what she said? So I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, maybe the, not that they have reason to take umbrage, but as Jessica said, it was poorly worded. And I also think it was poorly timed, considering how South Georgia is really hurting after Hurricane Michael. But I do think you know, politics being politics, Kemp is going to find something that Abrams is going to do. And if we're being real, Abrams frequently gives Kemp fodder to um, to talk about when, you know, depending on her actions and where she decides to be and what she decides to say and all that sort of thing. Um, I would like to see a much more polished Abrams in general when it comes to her public speaking and her public facade, if you will. One of the things that just really irks me is that candidates are still talking about what we should not or should not have to do. Um, tell me what you're going to do. You know, like I'm I'm I've been pretty clear on this podcast. I'm going to vote for Abrams. I'm a dim. I do really support what she has to say. But when I see stuff like this, it just makes me cringe because I'm like, I want people to understand that, like, you are a capable woman and that you can do the things that you say you're going to do. Please don't tell me what I can't do. And I think that a lot of people maybe heard her say, we shouldn't do this or don't have to do this. And especially given context, the location and the timing, it just sounded really bad. Yeah. So the reaction to these comments, I think, has been one of the most infuriating things that I've witnessed in this campaign so far. And mostly because... The issue of economic development in rural Georgia is a very fraught one. It's a challenging one for the state to address. And here in the last couple of weeks of the closest governor's race that we've had in, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 years, we have collapsed the entire discussion around rural development in economic Georgia to whether or not you are condescending to the state's farmers and and hospitality industry. And I think my biggest frustration has come from Republicans outside of government who have voiced frustration about these comments on social media, they tend to be Chamber of Commerce type Republicans. And yet Abrams has consistently laid out policies in in a very detailed fashion that line up with the kinds of things that the Georgia Chamber says need to happen to uh, revitalize economic development in rural Georgia. And I just wanted to tick through a few of these where Abrams has laid out positions in line with the chamber. And in some instances, uh, Kemp has actually taken positions that are opposed to a business group that tends to support Republicans. So in a recent report the Georgia Chamber put out about rural economic development, the chamber says that Georgia must develop innovative solutions to increase capital investment in rural small businesses. Abrams has a $10 million program for investment in small businesses. The chamber talks about growing industries like advanced manufacturing and wholesale trade, which are other industries that could also supply employment in Georgia, along with uh, agriculture and hospitality. Abrams has a uh, position paper specifically geared at creating 25 to 45,000 high wage jobs in advanced energy manufacturing in the state. They both voice support for extending rural broadband as a way of economic mobility in rural Georgia. And they both talk about the need for uh, the state to support military veterans living in communities that are largely based around military economies. Um, And they both propose what appears to me to be the exact same thing of a commission to talk to the federal government about uh, the occasional base review commissions that get developed on the federal level to make sure that Georgia's military bases that are economic drivers for communities in small Georgia, um, that those get to stay, that they still continue to be big military installations from the federal government. And then just two more little things real quick. The chamber and Abrams are, are very consistent on the need for Georgia to draw down federal Medicaid matching funds. Abrams says we should do that through Medicaid expansion. And if Democrats take the U.S. House, that's probably the only way Georgia is going to be able to access those funds. 
And the chamber says that both the public and private sector should continue to protect the brand of Georgia from divisiveness and discriminatory policies. Abrams opposes the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and supports expanded non-discrimination protections. And Kemp says that he would sign religious freedom restoration legislation similar to what you see on the federal level into law. So on a whole basket of policies, the chamber and Stacey Abrams are aligned in what you do about rural economic development in Georgia. And in some of these instances, Kemp is actually opposed to the business wing of the Republican Party and Stacey Abrams. So I think that you know, all of this wonky business kind of comes up to the some of the points that on this substance, a lot of pretty much everyone in our politics is aligned in the same direction on what you do about economic development in Georgia. And they've just picked this out as a political weapon to use against Abrams two weeks before the election. Well, and I would agree with you. I mean, her campaign has been very substance rich. And I mean, her website is probably the most in-depth and well thought out website I've ever seen from a candidate running for statewide office. But, you know, all of the things that you brought up are rural development and economic development and this, that and the other. The the issues have not been agriculture based from her. And the farmers were concerned that, you know, she doesn't understand agriculture or the needs of agriculture and what we're facing down here, especially. And then this comment kind of just solidified the position that Stacey Abrams doesn't get agriculture. So while I think she has some good plans for rural Georgia, if that's what you believe, then, you know, that's the that's true. But when it comes to farmers on a day to day basis, I don't think she has a concrete plan for that. Jessica, I'm curious, what do you get the impression that one is more important than the other? Because Stacey Abrams is an attorney from Atlanta. She's a national political figure. So sort of the day to day life and challenges of people working in agriculture, particularly in the wake of the hurricane. I I think you're on much more solid ground saying that Stacey Abrams might not understand that from sort of a first person perspective, but she does seem to be aligned on these policy issues. Is it is it that farmers may not trust her on these issues because they don't think that she gets their personal situations or that they don't like these policies? I think it's a blend of both. And I think, you know, there's merit in the fact that they probably don't know her. She probably hasn't stopped by their their farm. I mean, Kemp and a lot of the other Republican candidates who run for office in some of these areas. I mean, you see them out there with their jeans and their sle- their sleeves rolled up and whether that's something she can't do or she doesn't have the connections to do, you know, there are there are moderate democrat farmers, but when they don't meet the candidate or they don't have access to the candidate, I think that then they just assume by default that that candidate doesn't understand what they want or what they need. And you know, that's been one of my complaints with Abrams is She's traveled kind of the perimeters of rural Georgia, and she spent a considerable amount of time in southwest Georgia, but she hasn't really been too present down where I am in southeast Georgia. And, you know, she's kind of hit the high spots, um, Savannah and Statesboro, but there's a lot of outlying counties that are predominantly agriculture, and she's been noticeably absent. So what do we think of the record of Republicans on rural economic development issues, I mean, on the on the merits of, of who would implement a better vision for rural Georgia if Kemp or Abrams was to become the next governor. Um, I was really struck by the number that 87 of Georgia's 159 counties currently have unemployment rates higher than the national average of 3.9%. This is in contrast to the vision Uh, typically promoted by Republicans in the state that Georgia is the number one state to do business and um, typical uh, Republican views on economics that if you're business friendly, if you're supporting business development, that that is going to benefit people's personal economic situations because there will be, you know, plenty of jobs available. Um, Megan, have you been able to sort of distinguish between these candidates who may have a better vision for rural parts of our state? So yes and no. I think it's kind of hard to distinguish when a lot of it is just a plan versus actually being able to take action. But based on the actions that I have seen being taken, um, agriculture, while super important to Georgia, really is changeable. Um, You know, the hurricane being such a great example, 
a hurricane blows through and completely guts agriculture for the state. So it's really hard to build jobs on that. So I can see why Abrams maybe wouldn't include that in some sort of a jobs plan or as part of her dialogue, because it's really hard to predict, at least from like a growth perspective. Obviously, Georgia has a very solid, booming agriculture uh, business that, you know, typically does well, but I can see why it could be problematic. But the thing that really concerns me about the Republican plans that I'm seeing is as a party, Republicans just seem really almost afraid to spend money because their entire or a lot of their campaign rhetoric is around like not raising taxes. And the bottom line is that things do cost money. And so a lot of the plans that Republicans are going to be able to make are going to be plans that spend tax dollars that already exist or have to move money around rather than really putting their money where their mouth is, you know, in in that sense and saying, okay, well, we believe in agriculture. We believe in rural Georgia. We need to raise taxes in order to support this. Jessica, what do you think about that uh, being from rural Georgia and and uh, I'm sure knowing people who who see things uh, differently? I'm inclined to agree that Republicans are afraid to spend money. I mean, that's why they get so, in so much trouble once they're elected, because they do have to spend money if they want to do anything. So I, I agree with that. But I guess I'm conflicted because, you know, we do have some more than struggling counties. I mean, Telfair County was the poorest county in the nation for two years in the last, I think, five years. And our one of our congressional districts is the poorest in the country. And and those things go across partisanship. And I, I just think that the issues that are facing rural Georgia aren't partisan. Whether or not someone has a hospital is not partisan. Whether or not there's any growth there shouldn't be a partisan issue. And I think so long as it is, then we're going to continue to fail because these policies are from one extreme to another. So as people shift and take office, even on, even on the Republican side, when you go from, you know, a moderate Republican to a limited government Republican, the types of policies are shifting so much that there's no time for real change or real implementation of change to see if the policies they're pushing are actually working. That's super fair. And is there any tension from rural Georgia about, you know, it, at least in, in sort of in the modern era, it feels like rural Georgia seems to play second fiddle to Atlanta in our, most of our policy and political discussions. And I think there's a lot of concern, you know, and a lot of the things that we've talked about, a lot of um, money that the Democrats may spend may be on things like transit investments that benefit the metro Atlanta area that may not have benefits in rural Georgia. Is there skepticism for a government to be more active in rural Georgia because, you know, because people may not believe those benefits are not going to ever leave Atlanta? Or how does that play into it? I don't know how to answer that specifically. But I do know that rural Georgia one, you know, I'm from Atlanta and I moved down here. So it definitely opened my eyes to the way that policies are implemented and the one size fits all approach. But at the same time, I think that rural Georgia issues present a consistency problem for a lot of people. Like someone might be a libertarian or a staunch Republican that doesn't believe in government intervention at some level, but then they see that doing nothing isn't going to work either. And so whether it's, you know, just from the rural tax credit or the rural hospital tax credit or some sort of economic development stimulus. Like they're, they're more open to maybe compromising on their views for the sake of survival, I guess. I mean, there's multiple counties that I cover for work that the county commissioners have bailed out the local hospital. And now the taxpayers are a hundred percent the contingent plan of whether or not these hospitals survive because they've added property taxes to their millage rate and things like that. That's not something you would see in Atlanta from people with the same policy positions. Um, But down here, people see it as like, this is the lifeline of our community. So it's just interesting. There's people are willing to compromise more. Mm -hmm. I will say as someone who's critical of Abrams comments about this, you know, I think it was a stupid thing to say and I don't like where she said it. And I agree that it was poor timing. 
I'm also equally frustrated with the way that it's been twisted. Like the memes and things going around now saying like Abrams doesn't believe you should have to go into agriculture because you can just go to the grocery. Like that's not what she said. Like if you want to be angry, let's be angry about what she said, not some twisted. That's been something that's, and I guess it's getting worse because of what's going on at the national level, but the ability of people to twist what she said or to announce her intent is what's killing me. I agree. That's been super frustrating to see. It's like, yeah, she said something and it wasn't probably the best thing to say. But yeah, let's be mad about the content, not anything else that we don't actually know she meant. Well, I think the thing that's sort of most frustrating about that is that political science research actually shows that voters kind of pick up their or can pick up their opinions, particularly on issues that they weren't previously familiar with based on the positions that political reader, that political leaders they respect take. And so this discussion of whether or not, you know, it this would be a really interesting time to have a discussion of whether or not a more government centric or less government centric approach is better for rural Georgia. And that's not the discussion that we've been led into by the reaction of these comments. Um, you know, it, the House Speaker David Ralston has had a House Rural Development Committee for the last couple of years. And this is something that when I first came across it, I kind of interpreted this as maybe a legacy item for the speaker, an opportunity for him to come up with like really big policy ideas. I mean, they initially, some of the things that they were throwing out there at the beginning of this commission was like paying people to move to rural Georgia. It seemed like, you know, that was a big idea that may have been headed in the wrong direction. But in comparison to the hospital rural tax credit that I've been really critical of, that was like a big idea that was like a new thing that, you know, maybe could people could get excited about. Maybe it's some it's an idea that could cross ideological lines. And now you have two starkly different candidates running for governor who have two very different views about the future of this state, but we aren't getting that in the conversation that we're having around these comments made by her. And so I think that that as a way of helping voters understand the choices before them and how they can make a decision that they think would make their communities better, make their state better, I don't think that this campaign is actually producing that kind of conversation for us. Well, and I'm just of the belief that if you're outraged by something, that outrage or what's causing that outrage should be able to stand on its own merit without you embellishing it. And this entire campaign cycle from both sides has just been like a series of outrage. Like the lacking policy is just, I could do an hour conversation on that alone because they both have ideas, but we've spent more time talking about whether or not someone can name a county or not. I mean, I don't care. There's a map. She can look it up on the map. I don't care. <laughs> like, we've all misspoke, misspoke it before. So I just, it's been frustrating. I'm ready for it to be over. Yeah, there might there might be universal agreement on, on ready for this thing to be over. <laughs> um um, so let's move on to our second topic for this week. So as as we edge closer to the November 6th election, the race for governor is increasingly focused on access to the ballot. Georgia is now facing five lawsuits challenging various rules within our voting system, and the latest challenges come on the heels of a court decision admonishing the state's leaders over their failure to pick secure, auditable voting machines and outrage in Randolph County over considered closures of precincts in heavily African-American neighborhoods. Brian Kemp, the state's top election official, who's also running for governor, calls many of the legal challenges politically motivated and says it's never been easier to register to vote here in our state. Megan, what do you think about voting and access to the ballot becoming a central issue in this race? Do you think that it distracts from other more important conversations or or changes the way that people view this election at all? I don't know that it distracts from more important issues. I think this is a very important issue that needs to be hashed out by us as a state. And then, you know, like nationally, we're not we're not the only ones that are necessarily affected by issues that are like this. So I think it's appropriate to talk about. But I also think it reinforces what has been spoken about about Kemp encouraging him to resign. Like this is a mess and this mess has his name all over it. 
And yet he's still running for governor and running this election as a secretary of state. And so I think it just adds an entirely new dimension to it. But I also think that that helps amplify the story. So it's getting national attention, which is ultimately probably a good thing. So I have a question before we really dive into this, because it's been one that I've wondered for a while, but when you put it out on social media, like the answers you get are not anything of substance. So why wasn't this issue, or maybe it wasn't, I just missed it, but why didn't we talk about this four years ago? So the law was passed. Like there, it's a new law. You're talking about the exact match. Yes. What was it? Okay. I, I meant, I, I guess... I should have been more specific, like Kemp overseeing his own election because he was on the ballot in 2010 as secretary of state. Like, are we just concerned because it's the governor's race or was it not such a big deal when he was running for secretary of state? I don't I think the the broader conversation around voting did, I think, start to peak up a little bit in 2014. I don't think I don't remember hearing much about Brian Kemp overseeing his own secretary of state's election. Um, but I, I think that it has become a little more central, you know, the, uh, their sort of rivalry over voting issues seemed to develop unless I have my timeline wrong. I think it seemed to develop in 2014 when her organization was registering minority voters for the 2014 election when Jason Carter was the nominee. Um, so I, I think it kind of started then. I don't know. I don't remember the conversation around him, around whether or not he should have resigned at the time. But I do think that's interesting if it, you know, if there should be some sort of dividing line here on can a secretary of state oversee his own race when he's running for secretary of state or running for reelection versus running for a higher office if there's any kind of difference there. But I, I think a lot of these questions are are central because this is the biggest race at the top of the ticket in Georgia this time. Yeah, I think that that's part of what I was trying to get at with the whole, like, it's bringing it, it's bringing a lot more attention to it. But also, I will say that I didn't live here four years ago, so I don't know. I didn't mean you specifically. Like, why didn't you talk about this four years ago? But, you know, it's just interesting because, like, I'm conflicted on the issue. And so when I hear people talk about it, I understand what they're saying. But I also wonder why, you know, people weren't talking about it during the primary or when he was running for secretary of state two times because you know he was appointed and so he he's overseen a lot of times when he's been on the ballot and so i just wonder if there are people who were like well i've been mad about it since it started so and there i'm sure there those people are out there somewhere well one element of that that i found really interesting is that there seems to be enough of a division of responsibilities in how our state administers elections that there is room enough for sort of the county, the local county elections officials to point fingers in other places for the Secretary of State to point fingers at the counties in terms of how policies are written down on paper versus how they're implemented. And so I think that maybe the most important question to come out of this for me, and I think a good question for Democrats, should they ever want to take uh, state election procedures in a different direction, is should the state have a greater oversight role? Should they set standards for how local counties are implementing the laws on the books um, in a tighter fashion than what we have now? Um, What do y'all think about the state playing a greater role than they have in the past? I think they should. I think that that's how we, I mean, assuming here, so let's say this. One would have to assume that the role the state takes is a nonpartisan, well-thought-out, well-organized one. But assuming all of those things are true, then having state oversight could eliminate some of the issues that we're having on a county-by-county basis um, and maybe make things more standard and make things a little bit easier. And that way we don't have specific issues springing up in specific counties um, like we're seeing now. I think there's definitely room for streamlining the process and some of the standards, like you said, my biggest concern is, you know, while I'm not, I'm not as concerned about Kemp overseeing his own elections as I am about the secretary of state's office being partisan in the first place. You know, if I, like you said, it could eliminate a lot of problems and I think that it would, I mean, 
I guess you would never really know if someone people, everyone has leanings. So it could, it would, but it would still divide the constitutional office stronghold um, in a sense. And I just think that it would leave room for people to be a little more open at the local level about problems they're facing. One thing I will say is that the secretary of state's office is um, very diverse and so in addition to the division of duties, I would hope that if someone saw something like they have all different political backgrounds across the state in the offices, I would hope that someone would speak out. If that's me being a little bit naive about the process, then maybe. But I would hope that there are enough people who aren't staunch Republicans that work in you know, one of the offices that if they felt like there was something going on locally or regionally, they would say something and maybe they'd be more inclined to do that if the office was nonpartisan. Well, and the other thing I think this raises is, has all of this controversy around voting been good for Republicans or Democrats? You know, Democrats often allege that Republicans have put policies in place that are hurdles to people of color voting as a way to secure Republican power against greater minority represent or greater minority participation in voting. You know, I think Republicans may push back on that and say, these are policies that we think are necessary to make sure that people are not voting incorrectly or fraudulently. And that if a policy disproportionately impacts minority voters, that it's not the fault of the policy, but it's another circumstance that, for instance, gets them caught up more often in the exact match procedures or um, makes it harder for them to get a voter ID necessary for voting. Um, Do we think that this has been good or bad for either of these parties involved? Whoever wants that one. (laughs) I'm just thinking... Right. I'm like, I'm, I'm not really sure I have an opinion on that particular aspect of it. Are you speaking specifically on the exact match aspect? If it's no, good just, or bad? just kind of broadly on. So like, I think the argument that this may be good for Democrats is that although these hurdles exist, they are not impossible to overcome. It is not impossible to get a driver's license or photo ID in the state of Georgia. Um, And it is not impossible to show up with your ID. You know, this is the most important message for people to hear around this story of pending voter registrations. If your information did not exactly match what's in one of the databases that elections departments use, um, is to show up to vote anyways, and to show your ID, because if it substantively matches what is on your application, that's going to solve your problem, and you're going to get to vote. And so for Democrats, they may look at this, and they've sort of had to throw their hands up in the air and get all enraged and talk about voter suppression. But it's actually put the issue of whether or not Republicans are trying to make it impossible for Democrats to vote in front of Democrats for them to slap that down and have more reason to go out to the polls. So I think that there's actually reason that reason to believe that this could have been good for Democrats, even though they're the ones throwing up their hands and crying voter suppression. Gotcha. I that does make sense. But at the same time, you could say that about just about anything that's going on in this election cycle, because somebody's bound to get pissed off. And Honestly, being pissed off is what turns out voters. So by that logic, pretty much anything that happens, good or bad, Republican or Democrat-centric, has the potential to be good for both parties because people are going to have a reaction. And the reaction that these days, especially with everything that's going on national, is, well, your only real voice is to vote. I'm inclined to agree with that. I feel like It's just a series of things happening that are causing people to say, well, that's why I'm going to the polls or this is like, I feel like every, you know, every press release or video or campaign ad that comes out, people respond with, this is why we have to turn out to vote. It's that issue. And then the next one comes around and they're like, actually, it's this one, you know? So I don't know. I feel like it's just everyone's looking for a reason to try to get more people to turn out. But I do agree with you about the pending registrations that like one of the worst things to come out of all of that was the message that you can't vote. And you absolutely can. Like you should. You should go vote and you should cast your ballot. And I felt like that was very concerning when that first came out. And 
basically telling all those people to stay home, like your vote's not going to, you can't go. Absolutely. And plenty of people are going to hear about all these things and they're going to say, well, the the ones that haven't been pissed off yet or inspired are going to say, all right, well, I'm just not going to bother because I don't feel like dealing with it Um, because they think they know that the answer is that they can't vote. And so that is really unfortunate. Despite all of this controversy over voting, are do you both feel comfortably that we will have a legitimate and effectively conducted election in a couple of weeks? No. 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 Um, Is that a no from both of you? I just, I know too many people who are personally affected by everything that's going on. And some of them are not quite as engaged in politics as I am. So they're going to be some of those numbers that are going to not turn up at the polls because they think that they know that they can't vote, despite me telling them that that's not the case. (laughs) Um, But I think that, you know, because of that, because we've got potentially partisan oversight of the elections, because we've got so much else going on in the state with all the hurricane damage and having to move precincts around, which makes it harder to vote, because we've got a ton of people who don't trust the system, so they're going to use absentee ballots. So then um, you've got a bunch of people that who are needing to make sure that they request them on time and send them in on time and all of those things. There are just so many aspects of this particular election that get really muddy and that make me believe that it's going to be really hard to hold fair, solid elections in Georgia on November 6th and the week's coming up to it because early voting has started. So my skepticism, I understand what you're saying, but my skepticism, I guess, comes from a little bit more personal experience that kind of trickles into every election, whether it's city council or governor and everything in between. Especially, I mean, I I guess I shouldn't say especially because I just maybe I didn't pay attention as much or I wasn't as connected just because of my job, but we have a huge problem with voter fraud in rural Georgia um, from both sides of the aisle. I mean, between busing, busing people who are mentally unable to think for themselves who are paid to vote, we have fraud with our absentee. And I'm, and I can say with certainty that it's, on both sides of the aisle that they do this. And so I've seen it, I've seen it influence state house races. I've seen it influence local races. And so the cynic in me is just assuming that it's going to carry over into what's going on now, because I've seen it in action. I've seen like the way they mobilize and, and reach out to these people who have not to be offensive, but no business voting. I mean, they don't know what they're doing. They don't understand. They can't comprehend. Um, And it's very sad to see them taken advantage of. And so, I, for for that reason alone, I have no faith in our elections because it's been reported to the Secretary of State's office and other offices a number of times and still happens in the same communities over and over. Now, are these things, because you know, the, when, when the issue of voter fraud comes up in like a national conversation, it tends to focus on in-person voter fraud where somebody is misrepresenting who they are, either their citizenship status or... Um, that they're trying to vote as somebody else. Um, and and that fears over that are uh, way overblown, that that happens very rarely. Is the stuff that you're talking about, is that stuff that sort of flies under the radar in reporting or stuff that's like technically on the right side of the law but may not be ethical? Can you just describe a little more of what the uh, kinds I, of things you're... I know that some of it is not within the confines of the law. I mean, is it... Is it wrong to have an assisted care facility where someone fills out all the ballots and then has someone sign them and they and they allegedly explain them to the people? I mean, that's something that's a little maybe more gray, depending on how you see it. But the ones where, you know, you're registering people and then you, you drive them, they can hardly hold a job. And maybe they're like a dishwasher or they live in in some sort of housing facility that is specifically for people who are mentally incapable of doing for themselves and they go to the polls and, you know, they're given lunch or $20 for voting the way that they do. That's not misrepresenting who they are. They are that person who's casting that ballot. They just, if you were to go ask them who they voted for several months later, idea who they voted for or why. That's kind of an, that's kind of a different take on, on voter fraud than I've heard 
in the past. Do you, do you get the sense that, you know, Kemp often talks about the sort of litany of policies that have been challenged in lawsuits as being necessary to secure elections. Do you think that the things that he is talking about, like exact match and the way that absentee ballots are handled, are they aimed at addressing those issues or are these separate things? No, absolutely not. And I will, I will backstep just a little bit because I said that the secretary of state's office has investigated and nothing happens. There have been some reprimands in the area, but you know, when there's no criminal charges, what's to stop someone from doing it again? But no, the policies that we've put in place as a state have not limited this because the process, you know, everything up until they get out of the van and you send you send them in and they come back out and you give them lunch or a $20 bill or whatever it may be, everything else is legal. And so unless you know someone who was either facilitating it or you know, because the other people, the people who are voting are not going to report it. They don't know it's wrong. Mm-hmm. So the, there's not really any oversight until you have, you know, massive turnout for an election that really doesn't mean much to anyone. So you think criminal charges for those who are facilitating this would resolve it or would you resolve it in another way? I think it would help. I think it would I think it would be a deterrent because one not everyone's doing it, you know, it's, it's a select group of people on granted on both sides of the aisle, but I I would hope that it would act as a deterrent. Megan, so I know you uh, talked to somebody who's also had a run in with these policies. Um, Can you just describe their experience and in what they took away from how these voting policies are being implemented? Absolutely. So as I alluded to a little while ago, I actually know some people who are personally affected by um, some of the voting policies, including exact match. And a really good friend of mine um, who actually just moved out of Georgia indicated as he was moving that, oh, he's affected by um, exact match. We were talking and um, I was just like, hey, I have some questions for you, if you don't mind. I want to know what caused you to realize that you were affected because he also indicated that he w- he realized he was affected after the voting registration deadline had already passed. So there wasn't really anything that he could do about it as far as re-registering. And so he said that he actually found out that he was affected way before exact match even went into effect. He found out in 2016 when he went to vote in the presidential election that he was actually registered three times. His name, his first name is traditionally Vietnamese. His last name is Turner. So very common in the Atlanta area. You know, we have Turner Field and all that sort of thing. Um, Ethnically, he's Caucasian. And so he really does think that he was picked out because his first name is an ethnic first name. And he said that he had three different names associated with his address, all of which were similar to his, but were all misspelled or misprinted in some fashion. He said he contacted Fulton County. Um, he contacted a few people trying to get all of that sort of thing resolved to no avail. Never heard back. He was able to vote in 2016 after a good bit of rigmarole. But then he uh, it kind of went off his radar. And then as he was moving away from Georgia, he realized that if he was still here, he wouldn't be able to vote anyway. Or, and as I actually told him, he's like, I was like, well, actually, you can vote provisionally. He's like, okay, well, yeah, I can vote provisionally. But what I mean is it would be a huge pain in the rear for me to vote. So it was pretty telling um, just to have somebody that I know personally. He's not going to worry about it because he's moved out of state now and he just kind of doesn't have a dog in the race anymore. Um, At least that's what he feels like. So it ended up being more or less a non-issue. But yeah, so it was it was kind of bizarre to have a conversation with somebody that's actually been affected. Uh, That's interesting, because the answer to my own question that I um, that I posed to y'all was that before before you both brought a lot of examples who uh, this election seems to not be um, working out the way it should for that all that a lot of these problems are on the margins, but that on the whole, we would have a generally fair election in this state. But you know, if if we have uh, a tight race, and 538's governor's model came out 
this week and uh, said that Georgia's governor's race was the closest in the nation at this point, um, that all of these people impacted by poor processes, that these votes on the margin may make a difference. Um, And if they don't make a difference in a statewide race, uh, there's a lot of smaller local races that are going to be decided by a few hundred votes where uh, those you know, votes or access to the polls or lack of it um, could really shape the outcomes of these races. So, you know, it's hard. I've, we've run up to this question two elections in a row. Uh, The the 2016 elections, it, it seems to have been brought on in the lead up to the election where Trump, it was unclear whether Trump would say that the results of the election were fair. Turns out when he won, they were definitely fair and totally right. And nobody should have ever questioned it. Um, but, and, you know, but we're also coming up to this issue in a very tight race here in Georgia in 2018. Um, so I don't know, you know, do you guys think there's anything to do on the back end if we come away from this election and we have stories that are reported out about the ways in which this last election wasn't conducted fairly, or is this just a forward looking problem of, you know, we have to take the elections that we have and and try to improve the future ones to be better. I think we should have to do it again. No. Why would you make us go through this again? (laughs) Please, God, no. I don't know if democracy is worth it. No, I think we should fix it and do it again. Clearly, I'm alone in that. (laughs) No, I mean, there's been a couple races that uh, there's a state house race right now that was just directed to be conducted again because of voting problems at the local level. But I'm just not very hopeful about like an actual resolution just because I've seen when there are other problems. I mean, the, I think what happened with the state house, um, I think Dan Gassaway, is it right? That Yeah, I think so. There were voters in the wrong district, I think. Right. That- and I feel strongly that if he hadn't been a sitting state rep, that there wouldn't have been such a staunch like effort for an investigation and to resolve it. I feel like if it was just any Joe Blow that, It'd be like, sorry, good luck. Maybe try again in two years. And that's how I think, you know, we'll see this. If people are going to be upset no matter what, if, you know, Stacey Abrams wins, everyone's going to say it's all voter fraud. If Brian Kemp wins, it's going to be calls of voter suppression. And whether they're unfounded or founded or backed up or substantiated, I think we're, we're going to hear stories and think our divide is only going to grow wider, just like it has at the national level. And so basically, it sounds like I don't have much hope for anything, but um, it's, you know, no one's going to be happy. That's okay. It's usually my job to be the cynic. So thanks for taking it on tonight. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, I don't, I just don't know what you do once elections have already happened, that I think it would be difficult to take a statewide governor's race. And even if you had evidence that would say, you know, Stacey Abrams won the race by 500 votes, but there are 600 votes that should not have gone to her for clearly identifiable reasons. And therefore, logically, based on the evidence that we have, the race should be overturned and it should be handed to Brian Kemp. I don't know any situation in which people would say would see that and have sort of a universal agreement on the facts that that was the right thing to do. And so I think that as we come up, you know, we, we tend to find these problems or they tend to tend to come to the top of our consciousness when the election is close, because there's a lot of people looking closely at how it's being administered, how it could be better administered. Um, but I do think that it's really difficult to look backwards and change the outcome of a race based on stuff like this versus just taking the lessons and moving forward. Which is exactly why we should have to do it again. Well, don't you think there would be some pretty heavy non-political implications of having an election overturned? Like, I kind of see it as being similar to, like, impeaching a president in that it could have, like, economic impacts and just chaos. I mean, especially with how much power we've given our governor's office. And, And another thing, too, is, like, we talk about Abrams and Kim, but... There are a lot of down the ballot races that I'm equally concerned about that are statewide offices that, you know, how would we even determine which one was legitimate and which one wasn't and whose race is sound? And I just, God, what a nightmare. What do you, Megan, what is the, do you have sort of a process in your head for doing it again? Or 
how do we uh, how do we turn back the clock and try a try a do over? So there's no turning back the clock. I think it's it's not as much a do over as a do correctly. Um, you know, it, I think most of our frequent listeners on the podcast know that I have a real problem with our current voter setup. Um, some of my life is focused on information security, and so the computers that we use are just completely inadequate. Um, there's just no getting around it. The machines, the databases, the data is stored on, all of that. So I think that we have an emergency situation on our hands if if we have a super close election that could possibly be overturned, and we need to get we need to vote differently. We don't just do it again in the sense that we have everyone go back to the polls and use the exact same methods and all that sort of thing. No, I think what we do is I think we roll out a completely different voting system, preferably one with a secure electronic front end and a paper back end for audit purposes and try something different. That's what we really need to be doing here, trying something different. I think whoever gets the most retweets should become the governor. <laughs> okay, Kyle. <laughs> um, I don't actually think the most retweets should uh, become the governor, but you know, at this point, I don't know if uh, one would be more accurate. One process would be more accurate than the other based on our conversation today. Well, um, I was reading this really cool article in Wired that talks about using blockchain for voting and you would basically vote on everything, um, every aspect of everything, and it would be to a point where you could use blockchain so extensively that you wouldn't actually need a government because everyone would be able to, to securely vote on every decision. I thought that was a little like pie in the sky and also very extreme, but I thought it was very interesting just for a thought exercise. So that's an option too. Well, one day we'll have a podcast where you explain to us what blockchain is, because I see vague commercials from IBM about blockchain and just figure it's some uh, business thing that they do. Um, But with that, I think we will uh, leave that there for the week. Uh, So Megan, it was great to talk to you again. It was great to be on, Jessica. It was so nice to finally get to be on the podcast episode with you. And I'll talk to you guys soon. Have a good one. Yeah, Jessica, thanks for being on. And uh, with that, we will leave it there. And we will talk to y'all again later this week. I've been doing the outro all wrong for the last few weeks because we made a decision and then didn't really announce it that you're getting two podcasts a week through Election Day. So you're going to hear from us later again this week, recapping the first debate between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. That debate is Tuesday night, and you'll hear from us probably Wednesday or Thursday about how that debate went. Uh, But for that, we are going to leave that there. And so we will talk to you again soon. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.